to Barn Banter with Cowboy Andy. That's me. The podcast for kids musicians by a kids musician. And this week, we get to revisit one of my favorite topics because it's all about your career. It's about when you actually produce something and you want to take it to the... So we have trumpets there. Do, do, do. Yeah. Next, Next level. level. I'm totally going to put some reverb on that. Maybe even a really cool delay. Next, Next level. level. Maybe a reoccurring term, uh, term that we'll use all during this conversation. And if you don't know how to do marketing and communication and, and, and PR, well, then you should probably do what you do when you have a sore tooth. You go to a professional. You have a sore tooth, go to a dentist. Want to promote your band and your new album? You go to a PR firm. And so today we're going to talk to one of uh, a few rarefied uh, success stories in the kids' music genre, as far as I've been able to determine. The, um, I'm hoping, owner, I'm thinking, I'm assuming owner of Sugar Mountain PR out of Portland, Oregon. We're going to be talking to Beth Benz-Klukas. Hello, Beth. Hello. How are you, Andy, today? Cowboy Andy. I'm super excited to talk to you because I've talked to some folks in the industry who do think maybe what you do before, but probably not exactly what you do. There's this idea of getting to the next level. Next, next level, level. As a children's musician, I think it's a very accessible career option. If you're going to do rock and roll, you're swimming against an ocean of a million people, anybody who can pick up a guitar. But not many people can do successful kindy kids music, I think. And even fewer get to the point to where they actually make an album and they want to pursue it as a career and and actually do something with it, maybe outside of their sphere of influence. And that's where you come in, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, it sounds to me like you have a good sense of what 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 it takes or what you need to think about if you decide that you want to record songs for children uh, is realizing why you're doing it, first of all, where your place might be in, in the genre, and what you have to offer children and families. So when I'm talking to a new potential client or talking to a new artist, that's what I'm looking for. Somebody has a good sense of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And, um, you know, what are they in it for? What reasons are they involved in or want to get involved in children's music? And it's sort of that genuine quality and also that that awareness quality of, that I'm looking for, along with talent and whether I like the music or I think that I could do something for them. Um, but it, really, that's sort of the first thing. I want to know where are they coming from, hmm. you know? Where... Okay, that's so, sort of what you're asking or, or... Well, yeah, totally. But where yeah. where are you coming from? Where I'm coming from is I've been involved in, I guess, the children's media world for a very long time. Let's say the early 90s, even when I got involved in educational video marketing and PR uh, through a distributor that I knew introduced me to folks who were starting this company called Sony Wonder. And I had been involved in another working in another company as an editor of a publication that reviewed educational videos for schools and libraries. And so at that time, I was really interested in, in um, you know, videos, educational videos for children. And I started helping companies do that. And this distributor then was also distributing children's music. And he introduced me to Sony Wonder and some independent artists who, was, who were in his distribution company. And uh, sort of one thing led to another, and I became more and more involved in in the children's music world over time. So by the late 90s, that's what I was doing. And I I found it interesting, fun. I loved the people involved. I they, you know, the passion that was involved. And I really just saw it as a really important, an important media form, an art form. Who who were some of those artists in the in the early 90s then? Anybody who's still on the scene, anybody independent? Yeah, well, Lyle Kogan. And uh, Suze, I don't think either one, maybe Lyle Coben still is involved, I'm not sure. Uh, but at that time, Sony Wonder had a family artist series, and it was called Family Artist Series. And it was like John Lithgow, who did an album, which is up here. I'll kind of turn the camera, look here, Singing in the Bathtub. That was, I think, 1993 or 1994. So there, this idea of 
people making smart music for kids that wasn't stupid was happening then, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, oh gosh, um, Art Garfunkel had an album for kids and, uh, you know, there were others that, you know, serious artists that were taking the children's genre seriously. And yeah, there were a couple of indies, but it really was the very early days, as you know, of just at beginning of AOL. There was really no internet sales. Most artists had to be on a label. If they, they had to be Raffi or the Wiggles. I think I met the Wiggles at a video conference one year in the 90s. But by the late 90s, 98, 99, that's when there was this big explosion. And, it, and incidentally, 1999 was the peak of CD sales, you know, of all time. Mm -hmm. It all went downhill after that. But, you know, so children's music was a viable medium and artists were selling, starting to sell records and they were figuring out how to market their music through, you know, online with their websites and online sales that was starting in the late 90s. And so that's when it really took off for me. And I started, I think it was the year 2000, I connected with Trout Fishing in America, Puda Mayo Kids was 1999, um, Justin Roberts in 2001, and it just kept snowballing from there. Mm -hmm. Were you, is that when you, when did you form Sugar Mountain PR as a Yeah, as a, that's, as a, that's entity? a good question. It wasn't right away. I was just me, my name, you know, Beth Blends Klukas doing PR and marketing freelance work. And um, so Sugar Mountain PR was, I believe I, I'd have to look at when I, formed, I think it was 2002, pretty mm -hmm. sure that was the year I formed it because I decided I needed a name that reflected. And if you, I mean, I say the name Sugar Mountain PR is both geographical and topical. Geographical because I live in Portland, we're near a big sugar mountain, actually several big sugar mountains. And, um, and topical because of the Neil Young song, you, you can't be 20 on Sugar Mountain. So children, I was thinking about Big Rock Candy Mountain PR and somebody said, that's too many words. So. <laughs> <laughs> right on. But it's worked out well. I think it, it helps to have in my genre, I think it helps to have an identity and it also opens the idea that, and I do have teams that I build from time to time, depending on the project. So it's all of us are working on something as Sugar Mountain PR. It's not just me. Cool. So what I'd like to talk to you about today is about the, the concept of PR. I mean, there's several ways that this conversation could go. And it's like, oh, I could probably, we could probably have a three-part, three-hour conversation. And I would still have questions. Part of it is as an independent recording artist in the children's genre, you know, I'm always looking for a way to promote myself. And so as a resource, then I would turn to someone like you or your company and be like, how can you help me? So that's that's one part of a conversation to have. Uh, another one that I'm really curious about is you said in 99, we had the, the, the most most of the CDs, biggest selling CDs uh, year. Well, things have changed so much and they've changed, it feels, again, really quickly. So yeah. the market now, in this summer of pandemic when there's no live shows, there's sort of a past, present, future aspect of, of being in this business. And I'm really curious about where you, talking to the artists that you represent and other peers, like, well, how do you see this thing working out? Where do you see it going? And, and Yeah, scary and exciting uh -huh. and I think everybody is trying to figure it out right now everybody the biggest artist I think if you're thinking of some of the biggest touring artists you know like the Lori Berkners or the Okie Dokie Brothers or or even the Wiggles you know I've, I'm helping the Wiggles with their new album um you know they build everything lately around their tours and they're performing in major theaters and that's where their income is kind Raffi you know Raffi goes to the biggest theaters and cities and he sells them out that's big that's a major income source and he's not doing that right now and the wheels aren't doing that this summer and other artists are not in the indies are not able to get out and do their summer library tours or just their local community concerts uh for example red yarn has an album you're going to talk with him soon i think he's here in portland and he's very beloved here in town because he's worked his butt off performing all the time for kids around town 
and he was planning a gigantic um, concert for his album Backyard Bop at a local park. It's going to be this massive event, probably hundreds of, you know, he can attract 600 people to his shows. It was going to be huge, and then he couldn't do it. So, so what, as you probably know, and all our, a lot of artists are doing, they're pivoting to live stream shows. What I'm noticing is because artists are at home, there's this huge flowering of new releases coming out. Lots of music, lots of songs, lots of videos, uh, special live stream concerts. It's good. It's exciting. And, and what I'm also noticing is artists are doing what I've been kind of harping on for a long time. It's not so much the album anymore. It's the song. It's the single that counts. And maybe that's hearkening back to the days of 45. I don't know. But it's kids are glomming on to a particular song, a particular music video. Mm -hmm. They like the fan engagement. That's another thing I've been harping on with clients. Is music marketing today is all about engaging with your fans. And if you can engage with them directly, Wonderful. And I think that's what artists are doing right now. So I think that's really what's going on and sort of been a lot of, for a lot of artists, it's forcing their hand to do that even more than they might have done before. Mm -hmm. I think I heard somebody, this isn't like fact, it's like what I heard in the grapevine that Live Nation, I should probably look it up, but we should both look it up. But Live Nation is saying it's a wash till end of you know 2021 really and possibly next summer if we have a vaccine i mean everything in our whole economy now depends on either an effective treatment or a vaccine or people wearing their masks bingo <laughs> everybody put a All mask three. and stay home for six weeks and we'll probably be okay but if not so, and, and your question though you know i was talking with lucky diaz today another example of a prominent family nudistic artist who's touring is a huge part of their income every year um you know what are they doing they're just getting creative they're creating new content they're repackaging their content making kind of new music mixes their latest album was kind of a re-recording of some of the their favorite songs and you know and they're just getting creative and trying to uh get the attention of their fans stay in the spotlight um maybe taking a little time to kick back and think well what am i doing with you know maybe it's good it's giving people a little time to step back and figure out what am i going to do next and um i mean who i am not a prognosticator i can't tell you when we all can get back to normal it's probably going to be a year from now that's my guess um and i hope we do and i hope that everything comes roaring back but maybe it'll be different maybe this whole thing with live streaming content and um, connecting directly with your fans that is so important to cultivate your fans and give them cool stuff and make them feel part of what you're doing that's got to be number one priority in marketing and PR mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about that let's go back Jack, to the uh, to the first topic and then we'll jump into life before during after the pandemic what do you do for your clients and like getting on your website which plug sugarmountainpr.com thank you um you uh, you represent a really diverse and yet super successful segment of the children's music industry the genre you know just looking at some of the folks who you know brady reimer oh look there's cuckoo kangaroos on there alphabet rockers okie dokie brothers ants 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 um those wacky, wonderful kids in the pink tutus, the not it's. The not it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but yeah, these are artists that I'm very proud to say I've worked with over years. And it's not like I'm working with them constantly. I keep in mind, and I, I would say the majority of my clients are not with a label, they're not signed, they don't have a huge marketing budget. I might be their whole entire marketing plan, which I Scares me sometimes, but I hope that I will say, you know, what else are you doing for marketing? Um, yeah, um, I'm not it. Oh, please, I, I'm PR. PR is, you know, a part of your marketing plan. In general, what I see, I'm a boutique PR, what's known as a boutique PR agency. I'm not like a full service 360 degree, I'm going to manage your career and do all your bookings and like everything kind of agency. I'm I focus on media relations because my background is pretty journalistic. I was a writer. I worked at a publishing company. Um, I've always been interested in music. So what I'm 
I like to say that I do is I think like a journalist. I try to think like a radio DJ. You know, what are they interested in? How can what my clients are producing serve the interests or needs of the journalists, the DJs, and what they need to provide to their readers or listeners? So I'm sort of the mediary. Uh, and the services I provide in a typical camp typical campaign is three or four months campaign. Um, somebody's coming out with it. Usually it's they've got a new album coming out and they're planning to release some videos and usually planning to go out on tour. So those kinds of things make it worth your money to hire a publicist because you're getting help with uh, crafting your messaging about the album, what makes it unique, what's interesting about it, what's newsworthy about it. Um, helping you kind of gather all the assets, we call them assets in Tierra, things like your photos, your, you know, your band bio, uh, all the links, the retail links, the information links, the download links, all into one handy place, creating a press kit basically. Um, and providing journalists and DJs and bloggers with all the information they need so that they don't have to work so hard to review your music. You want to make it as easy and seamless as possible. And I think that that is a challenge for the indie artists because what I find with new people in this business, they're wonderful musicians, they're great songwriters, but they aren't thinking about what a journalist needs to write about them. What, and you don't want to make people work too hard because they're going to give up. You know, we're not, we're not Beyonce. Um, you know, we're not at that level. So we have to make it as easy and seamless as possible. That's part of my role is just getting all those assets together in one place. Um, and then what I'm doing is I'm reaching out to, depending on the type of um, artist or what the type of album is, I'm trying to think like a journalist again, is what, how does this album fit into the news? Um, sometimes it's a challenge. You know, right now I'm working, yeah, and Brady Reimer did this amazing album called Songs Across the Pond with David Gibb, a UK artist. A year and a half ago, he went out on tour throughout the UK with David. And then they've, you know, been writing songs virtually and they produce this album kind of virtually across the pond. So that's kind of a story. And so telling that story has been important. Um, of course, a lot of things have happened in the news since they finished recording that album. So it's a bit of a challenge because I think in normal times, this album would have gotten tons of attention, but everybody's attention is now on the pandemic or Black Lives Matter or, you know. So for me, what my big job right now with that is breaking through the noise to the people who would be interested in the story of David and Brady and how they got this album together. So right now I'm pitching, um, songwriter and music recording publications seeing where we can get with that in addition to i would say my core list is parenting educational kids um kids radio uh press in your town you know say like so for brady he lives in long island i'm you know going after all the long island media uh, David gave me a little list of UK. I don't typically do outreach in other countries, but I have made some connections there now with bloggers and radio shows. So that's been kind of fun. Um, with Andy here in Portland, it's easy because I know all the Portland media and we're just reaching out to those folks. Um, and for, for an artist like that, I can go back to everybody who's reviewed the music before and say, Hey, Red Yarn's got a new album. And usually that's pretty easy. So you know, over the three-month period, or sometimes if an artist can only afford two months, I only do two months, you know, we're reaching out across the usual kids' parenting media, but also trying to branch out into mainstream. I'm always pitching NPR. And once in a very blue moon, we get something on NPR. Mm. Um, I'm always pitching the New York Times and the LA Times and the big press, you know, and they don't always answer, but I'm always pitching them, you know, and, and it's been a challenge, too, to get coverage in the music magazines for our genre. But I'm always I'm always championing, championing our genre to places like Billboard or Paste or, you know, and once again, once in a blue moon, we get a nice little story. So mm -hmm. find someone like the Alphabet Rockers who cross a, a, a genre as far as style and then yeah. also have a really strong uh, progressive political message to go along with it. That seems to me to be something that would be easier to 
um, attract attention from larger publications because it's unique on three or four different points. Oh, definitely. Their albums really are striking a chord. Uh, Rise, Shine, Hashtag Woke, and um, The Love, their two most recent albums that were Grammy-nominated. Uh, both of them were topical. You know, they kind of stretch the boundaries of what children's music is, and it beautifully produced and done. Um, you know, they're hip-hop, but there's also other R&B and other kinds of elements in there. They bring in a bunch of it's almost a dizzying array of people that they involve in their productions. So there's a lot of stories to tell. And the fact that they have kids in, and in, in a genuine way, have, it's not like kid pop, it's real kids singing their hearts and dancing their hearts out. And there's a lot of interactivity. You know, you can dance along to a lot of their songs. They often will post dance videos and things like that. So, yeah, you're right, though, in terms of the messages they're getting across. So for Rise, Shine, Hashtag Woke, I mean, they were involved in the Black Lives Matter movement before the rest of us, honestly. You know, they really have committed to um, inequality, issues of righting wrongs. Their last album, The Love, was more about LGBTQ uh, and identity and that, you know, how many children's records are about that? It's, it's not many. And, um, so they, re and they, again, done so well, you know, it's produced so well that they did get some great attention from the media. Hmm. How waiting for one big TV thing to hit that was just about to hit before the pandemic hit in March. And then it's just sitting in limbo. I hope it happens. Hmm. But anyway, <laughs> Yeah. So as a uh, performer, say, uh, let's say that we're looking at a new, a new act comes out. Um, we'll call them the microphones for fun. It's a new kids band called the microphones. Yeah. And uh, because they're all named Micah, it's a four piece girls band, women's band, they're all women and they're all named Micah. So it's the Micah phones. <laughs> and um, and they record everything on cell phone. I don't know. Whatever. Okay, we can stop that part. Um, let's say they put together an album. They've got 12 tracks. They're very excited about this. So one of the first questions would be, and you can answer this as honestly or, 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 or as uh, mysteriously as you, as you wish. When they're putting together their budget, uh, running a band like a business, which I always suggest people do, putting together the marketing and communication budget for this album release. And they've, so they've, they've, they've figured out how much it's going to cost to actually produce it and get it out there. And so that's done, but now they've got to have that marketing communication budget, the PR budget. What would you suggest is a realistic sum to throw at a, at a, at a budget like this? At that's a, a really like good this? question. And especially if they're, you're saying this would be an indie band uh, maybe they've got a few gigs. Are they nationally known? I mean, that that would be the question. If they're really just starting out and they're only known in their town, you do not want to spend thirty thousand dollars on marketing PR. You know, um, although I've heard people say that you really should spend as much money on marketing and PR as you do on the cost of production. I've heard that. I just don't know how realistic that is for small independent artists who are just starting out. Um, but it's something to think about. If you think about, say, um, you know, a top name children's act or something like Kids Pop. I don't work with Kids Pop, but think about how much marketing money goes into that. You know, it's so. But for an, a typical indie, you know, um, you want to set aside a few thousand dollars because you want to have your publicist fee paid. You've got you've got CD mailings to do that costs. Uh, printing up nice and getting a designer maybe to uh, set up your one sheet. That's not necessary, but it's nice. Um, you might want to, in terms of marketing, I'm just talking about PR. So you've got your publicity budget, but you might want to think about target advertising, digital ads, maybe on Facebook or boosting posts. There's that. Um, you might be your local parenting magazine. You want to advertise your concert. You might want to budget for that. Um, so. Uh, you know, for an album campaign, I would say you want to put aside at least five thousand dollars. Okay, and that would of of that what what share would go towards Sugar Mountain? Say that you have a band like this, and they're in um, a market, say the size uh, like Portland or Pittsburgh. 
you know, yeah. Cleveland size, that sort of thing. And so like a mid-market, not much competition from other from other bands, regionally known, finally, after two or three years, put their album out there. Want to get to, here comes the, the next level. level. So I like that, the <laughs> next level. I hear that from people a lot. I mean, you have to decide what does the next level mean to you. You want to have more of a national presence. You want to sell CDs to more people or you're, get more streams on Spotify, uh, maybe. Or maybe you want to just get into the library school market more. Maybe you want to just get more awards and attention just so people will know who you are. Um, and that's valid, you know, and, and the thing about publicity, okay, so you asked like, what would I charge? Well, I mean, I could send you my rate sheet, but it, it can range, for an indie artist, it ranges between 1,200 and 2,000 a month. And I think that's inexpensive compared to some agencies. You know, you could easily spend four to five to $6,000 a month on a big PR agency. And what you're paying for, is a team of people and a lot of over overhead. And I sometimes they might be able to get you on NPR or something, but it's there's no guarantee. So it's a lot of money, you know? And so I, I wouldn't recommend that for a person starting out doing something like that. Um, what does seem to make sense is to make sure you get reviewed in certain publications like School Library Journal is an important one. Um, it's also really great if you can get your songs played on certain radio shows, but those are never guaranteed through a PR campaign. All the publicists can do is tell you, I'm going to reach out to that person and those people the best way I know how. No guarantees. I never promise coverage. I just promise what I'm going to do, you know. So, so, so for me to be you, quiet, so you're saying you, know, you don't have any dirt on Kenny Curtis. I love Kenny, Kenny Curtis. I love Kenny too. You know, his alter ego, you know, like the, the third and forgotten chipmunk or fourth and forgotten uh -huh, chipmunk. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> no, but, like, that. but that's really, that's kind of the brass wing, the brass wing, good grief, the, the brass <laughs> ring in, uh, in children's music. It's like, well, if you can get on Kids Place Live, that is a level of next level established. And it's something that it's tough to get on. It's tough to get on there. And it, and because, yeah. uh, because they just have, they've they're just like anybody that some, some like the stuff, some, some don't. It's a question of, you know, if, so when I'm deciding whether to take on an artist, I have to look at whether I think it's going to be worth their time and money. I have to listen to their music and say, first of all, is it too much like something else I'm already working on? Because I'm always trying to have my current outreach can't all be the same kind of music or the same type of artists, or we're all from Portland, or, you know, I have to be a range at any given time. I like to have a range of things. So that's a big deal for me. I do listen to new potential clients listening to hear if I think there was a song that SiriusXM might like, because I know that is a top priority for everybody. And I'm basically earning my keep if I can get their, their songs on SiriusXM, honestly, because they are so important because of the fact that you can earn you know, royalties through sound exchange if your songs are played there. I would say that Sirius XM Kids Place Live, you could say that they helped build the kindy scene in the 2000s mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and continue to do that because artists use the income from those sound exchange royalties to fund their next production. And I can't think of, even though it's really great to get played on some of the other kids, we deal with something like 30 kids radio shows around the, mostly in the U.S., a couple of places around the country. And yeah, some of them are good about reporting plays to the, the PROs, but not all of them. And you're not going to make that any real money. It's just more about exposure of your music in different cities. Sirius XM and Pandora and, you know, Possibly Spotify, which doesn't pay very well, you know, honestly, but Spotify might help get with discovery. You might earn a few pennies. I don't know. But that, but Kids Please Live is responsible for the kindy genre. I almost want to say that. It definitely helps sustain a lot of the artists who are trying to transition from physical CDs to whatever else is out there. seems like yeah. playing, playing live and merch really seem to be the only relatively consistent uh, streams left. And so it's yeah. kind of small, you play small ball, a lot of small gigs, you, you know, you do 300 a year. Uh, 
you like Andy Z, you know, doing 300 shows a year. That's mm -hmm. a living. That's yeah. also a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. But, you know, you look at a group like the Okie Dokie Brothers, that's exactly how they started out. First, oh, they yeah. were young and unencumbered when they started. No kids, no marriage, no partners. They just did every single little library show, little club thing, some freebies. Like, they got out there and they went to every little town in Minnesota and did a show. Of course, now they don't do that anymore. They don't need to, you know. Um but it takes work and andy here in portland works like a dog i mean he works so hard and he's everywhere and work and also the thing that he does that i think is something other artists could take a lesson from is he helps other artists and he helps build the scene in his town it's not all about him like he's mm -hmm. producing shows he's supporting other artists he's bringing these artists onto his his shows to introduce them there's an artist here in town named jessica campbell who released an album last year well, can you feel it? It was very beautiful and nature oriented. Well, Red Yarn mentored her through having her, you know, guest star one of his gigs and then helped her get gigs. I mean, it was just amazing. And he doesn't always get immediate payback for that, but I think all the goodwill that he spread in the long run helps him out a lot. You mm -hmm. know, people know he's a great artist as well as a really good community builder. So, building a scene in your local town can not only help you but will help other artists and actually cause and I've seen that with Kindependent, Recess Monkey, the Nodits, Casper Baby Pants in Seattle. Um they definitely have built some scene up there. And Missoula has a little scene, you know, other towns do too. Chicago has a little bit of a scene. Brooklyn, New York, gigantic scene of kindy artists there to some degree Washington DC, but I don't see it in every town. LA is just kind of, there are some really good artists in LA, but they're not really all coordinated. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. No, it's, yeah, LA has got a huge treasure trove of really, really diverse performers currently, but they, and they collaborate with each other, you know, and, you know, Andy and Polly, and and Cookie Jar, yeah. and, but there does seem to be sort of a, it isn't as strong. Like you had the bridge, was it the, the bridge, um, Festival. Building Bridges Building Festival. Bridges. Right. Yeah. It had to be canceled. Oh. We were going to do so. Right. So I had a conversation with our local children's museum. Oh, okay. I have to credit Lucky Diaz for this, actually. So Lucky Diaz, uh, sometime, and Alicia, they performed at the Museum of Musical Instruments in Phoenix, Arizona, a couple times. And they met the museum director, Jeremiah who then moved to Portland and became the director of museum experience here at the Portland Children's Museum. So they introduced me to him through an email or something. And I went and met with him and I said, you know, you guys should really do a music festival. And he went, you know, light bulbs are going off. He goes, yeah. And he has a couple little kids and he loved Lucky and Alicia's music. And said, yeah, we should do that. So then we involved Andy Redyarn, Aaron Nigel Smith, um, people on the museum staff, a bunch of community partners. And last year we had a very successful Building Bridges Family Music Festival and uh, a lot of artists performed there. And they were in the pro we were definitely in the process of even booking artists for this year, but it had to be canceled. Mm -hmm. But he, but you were able to do it last year, I know. Uh, yeah. That was really kind of cool. That's what I it noticed because cool. um, I, you know, I played the Independent Stage in at the uh, Folklife Festival in Seattle. Yeah, and I was talking to Jack Foreman about that. About hey, oh, but the 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 fact that towns do seem to be coalescing as far as building these musical collectives and how um, strategic it can be, and yeah. how you know once you once you establish the value of music to a community, the community will respond. Whereas right. if you're if you're just doing it one off, it's sometimes it's hard to say get the value that you think you're worth as a performer. Or, and not be just sort of, oh, it's for kids type, you know, dismissive. Yeah. I want to hop back to something earlier. Um, because, and and I'm curious about this from your side. How do you manage the expectations of your clients when they come in? So let's say the microphones, this imaginary band, they come in and they say, we've got, uh, we have $6,000. And we want to do a three-month campaign. And in their mind, they've got stars in their eyes as far as what they expect this investment will be and what their return on the investment is. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a couple of them are like, well, this is the next level 
uh, fame part. And maybe a couple of them are like, no, this is, we, we want to see uh, a quantifiable results financially from this investment. So for every dollar that we invest in PR, we want it to return threefold or whatever. So yeah, I think there have been whole papers written on this topic. Um, and yeah, people do would like to see that direct result. And sometimes it does. You know, for example, if you do get reviewed in School Library Journal, you will sell CDs to libraries. It's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's good. And you can see a return on that. But not every blog post, not every radio play, not every interview in the local paper is directly going to result in sales. You might see a little bump. It used to be when Stephen Shepard, Blue Gobble, used to have his um, reviews on NPR. It's a tragedy that that ended because I would sit there when I'd get a client on there and I'd watch the Amazon sales on that day and they would just, you wow. know. And to me, that proved out to me that there's a market out there for children's music and it just needs, people just don't know, you know what's out there mm -hmm. when they hear it on NPR, the driving home, they're like, wow, that's really good. I'm going to order that from Amazon or whatever. So there, there can be cases where you're going to see direct results, but not always. Um, what I like to say is, and of course, artists all want to get the review in the, in the music magazines to validate themselves as musicians. I totally get that. Um, once in a while, again, a publication like Rolling Stone or Billboard will cover children's music but it's not that often and you have to get the right story angle for them or it has to fit something um but i think it's far more important to reach your core audience which is moms and dads for the kid you know if your music is for kids ages two to six which most children's music really should be because if you get beyond seven eight then it's harder to reach those kids honestly um they might hear from their parents, but they're not paying attention to what their parents like anymore, you know? So it's realistically, the the target market for most of my clients' music is kids ages three, two to six, maybe up to age eight. If you try to market to tweens, it's a whole different ballgame. Um, but uh, so you're essentially, you're marketing to parents and to some extent teachers, preschool teachers, early elementary teachers, have a really clear idea of who you're singing for, who you're writing your songs for, honestly, and especially within a particular album. When I hear an artist say, this is for, this album is for kids from two to 15, you know, like, I think, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because in the children's market, especially, you have to think about early childhood development. If, you know, you might be like rap. People make fun of certain artists. Like, I don't want to say Rappy because, but Rappy is perfect for preschool children. Mm -hmm. They love what he's doing and the words he's singing. And there's a lot of depth to Baby Beluga, even, you know? Um, but it may not be right for a 10 year old. Maybe it is. They'll remember listening to it when they're two. Um, but it, really, he has in mind the preschool child and child honoring and thinking of what children need at that age. And that's, I don't know how I got in this topic from marketing to this, but this is what I'm always looking at. You know, I want to know that this is genuine music where the artist has really thought about the audience and they're really, yeah, parents have to like it too, but it's really all about the kid. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm, I'm listening for. And if I can convey that then as a publicist to the people I'm pitching, I can be more effective. I know that from talking to other professionals in the industry who promote children's music or who are booking agents, that you uh, oftentimes it's a matter of who you take. You may have a hundred bands out there who all come to you with, you know, wallets open or credit cards and say, hey, I'm just like, I just want to, I need to buy your service. I need to buy your service. You only have so much time in the day, only uh, yeah. so much capacity. And so I imagine having to explain to people like, no, is part of your job. As an artist, when, the, when a PR firm or a marketing firm or a booking agency, when they say no, what would you suggest to them so that they have an opportunity to take that in a health, take that rejection in a healthy way? Because that's a specific type of rejection and come back to you again. 
or, oh, or, yeah. or, or, or and, and, you know, you want people to succeed. So, so what, what do you say? I mean, you, you just talked about writing, writing for the two to six year old crowd, which is perfect. What yeah. are some of the other things when you have to say no, that would encourage people to come back? Yeah. Well, lately, um, because I have a pretty good returning roster of clients, it has to be something, first of all, that just hits me like, wow, this is so great. I have to work on it. It just hits me immediately, you know, or something. Um, and if if it's not that, then it has to be something that I th- think fits, that I could do something with that they would be happy and feel like they spent their money well. You know, I always like to feel like I've done a good job and the artist is happy with the results. They like the reviews they've gotten. We can't always control reviewers, you know, but generally they're happy with the coverage. And if I think going in, I don't like think going into that with any doubt on that. You know, I want to know, think, okay, this person's going to get their money's worth because I'm going to work really hard and I know exactly what I'm going to say about this record and the message is going to get out there and I know X, Y, and Z is probably going to really like that message and they're going to do something with it. So at least I have some minimal level of confidence that that I can do something that'll make it worth the person's time and money. Um, Cause I am very conscious of that. I'm an independent business person too. I don't spend my money wildly on, on anything, you know? So yeah. So, um, and I know that money is hard earned in this business. We're not a pharmaceutical company. Some, some days I think I should work for a pharmaceutical company because they don't earn their money. But um, anyway. <laughs> no, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> yeah. Somebody said you should work for like the in pro, I don't know how you feel about vaccination, but anyway, the pro immunization campaign, that would be something I could do. But um, anyway. Uh, especially when COVID vaccine comes out, but anyway, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough business. I think sometimes I'll, uh, red flags when somebody calls me and I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about some others that call and they're just completely have this idea that it's going to be easy and that there'll be instant stars and that, you know, the editor of Rolling Stone or somebody's just going to just love what they do because nobody else has done this before because they have no knowledge of what's going on in the business. Those are red flags for me, especially if their music is just boring, you know. Mm. Um, but if but if the person goes into it and they're, they have, I can tell they have a good sense of what they're doing. I think you you do, that you and your band have a clear idea of what your band is and who your audience is and how you want to develop it. But not everybody does. They just think, I can write a few songs about ice cream and toothbrushing and nobody's doing this and it's going to be great. Yeah, and, uh, and that lack of knowledge bothers me sometimes. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to Jeffrey Cohen about that, who... Up until this year, you know, was was great at reviewing almost anything that she sent, you know, and uh, yeah. I had him on the podcast early on. And he said, God, I'm so tired of albums that are like day in the life. Oh, it starts with a wake up in the morn, you know, and then let's do the toothbrushing <laughs> song. Oh, and it's time to eat your lunch song. And, you know, it's he's like, yeah. you think that you're doing something original, but. Yeah. And I think we have to also pay attention to evolving tastes. We've got a whole new crop of parents coming up. They're in their thirties. They're millennials. They're not uh, Gen X anymore. There's a new crop. All the folks that were in the kindy scene, you know, 10 years ago, their kids are teenagers now. So we have to think about what are the new, how are they listening to music? A lot of them are saying, Alexa, play something. Mm -hmm. That there's also, um, you know, the, that they like different kinds of music. I know Tim Kubart really seems to be sensitive to that. He he wants to make music that's set with his producer Dom, you know, Dom Pelicaro. He they want to make music that sounds like top forty, you know, but with some depth and meaning in the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And his last album was Home, right? Yeah, that well, that's the one that won the Grammy a few years ago, and that one was all, all about home, you know. And that, that having an album that has some cohesiveness, if you're going to do an album as opposed to singles, it, make sure it sort of holds together in some ways. And I think Tim is really good at good at that. Sonically, that album was just so delicious. I loved listening to it just because it was so well produced and so clever. Yeah. I mean, it was like that's the 
you know, that's what I aspire to as a musician is when you hear somebody else do something and you're like, oh, man, I suck. Well, <laughs> They're so well, good. You know? well, well, you shouldn't think that. You should think, well, how can I do the, my way that's authentic to what I do and also have some meaning? Like, so when you started out, who were you inspired by or who were you listening to? Well, so in the in the in the children's music genre, the first bands that I probably tuned into were like you know Rhesus Monkey. Um, yeah. I grew up on Sesame Street and the Muppets, and yeah. uh, so from as far as an influence, that was probably the major influence that I had. As far as that and like Roger Miller, so I you know I kind of call I, I call back a lot to the older Johnny Cash and. You know, clever, clever, fun lyrics and that sort of zany yeah. witticism type thing is what is that's the well that I go to as a musician. Once I started uh, taking this a little bit more seriously, like by the time of our second album and started listening to other artists, you know, started to try and mix things a little bit more like the Beatles where the vocal front do a little bit more story thing, do something that that see. And I'm just a I'm always at the mercy of whatever the song is. So if you if someone said, hey, why don't you write us a, a kid's song about, you know, getting a shot of the doctor? It'd be like, oh, no, I can't do that. But I can write a song about chickens going to Hawaii. <laughs> because that's. Yeah. Cool. So well, going I, back to what I said, like thinking about your age level, to me, that seems like for kids who graduated out of preschool music, they want funny songs, you know, or quirky or something to make them think. That's how trout fishing in America, a recess monkey is a good example where there, mm -hmm. there's story songs that are funny. Right. Yeah. Right. And so for me, that's, that's my, that's my personal creative expression. Yeah. Um, and I decided, I recognized that, well, maybe that's, maybe there's not the audience for that f out there. There's the same like Lori Berkner audience because I'm not doing what she's doing at all. Mm -hmm. I'm not, and I don't think I can. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's tying it back to what you do then. Then I'm a harder sell because I probably am more obscure. I probably don't have that sort of um, broad, uh, that sort of broad appeal that you're like, oh yeah, no, I can see every preschool in america they could probably use that song for instance well that's that's a good point andrew i think that there are different strains in children's music as a genre and i think they're all valid there is the person with their ukulele that's down at the library singing sing-along folk songs that's valid you want kids to sing you want them to hear see a live musician playing their guitar or ukulele at the library that's a great thing but it may not make a record, you know? Maybe mm -hmm. Lindsay Monroe, this record that Raffi produced for Lindsay Monroe, she's an exception. I don't know if you've heard her record. I should send it to you. It's very simple, ukulele-driven, few other instruments thrown in. Raffi pipes in once in a while. It's a really sweet record. She's new on the scene, and she pulled off what I would find, I think, is very difficult to do, creating a very simple sing-along album but her voice is great and her delivery is great and it's produced well there's that's an example of somebody in that space okay mm -hmm. and Rocky baby leads the way in that space um then there's uh the educational artist that is teaching you a new language like uno dos tres andres uh, very educationally driven um very uh so andres is a, is a doctorate in music christina is, was an early childhood educator so the two of them together are very powerful. You know, they're writing great songs. They're teaching. I'm learning Spanish from them. You know, I mean, anybody, parents and kids could learn something from that. And there are any number of, you know, educational language learning, math oriented. Schoolhouse Rock was an example. Learning mm -hmm. through song. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we've got the art. And they're all art, perfectly great art forms. The other big art form that I think Kindy is, is the singer-songwriter for children and they and the nice thing about that is it can be any genre it can be any topic except for some maybe not all topics but most topics any crazy topic you can think of like andrew and polly's grape song mm -hmm. uh, that song is a hit and it's just about grapes okay um but story songs humor 
and you're in that, and then you have to figure out where are you within that, the singer-songwriter art form, which I think is every bit as valid as children's literature is. You know, it's like a great children's picture book is great, and it gets a lot more attention and respect than a children's album. And maybe it's because we don't have labels anymore that support these things like a publishing house would. So we're all kind of out here on our own, but it's finding your audience. So if you've got 10 true family fans and they know and get what you're doing, you need to figure out how to engage them and, and to get help them, have them help you find other families like them and kids like them that would like what you're doing. And then in two years, they're going to age out. So there's that other challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so you've touched on it. If you have 10 more minutes, I'd love just to pick your brain for 10 more minutes. If that's yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. I'm, re I'm rambling here. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. This is all golden. <laughs> no, but see, this is the thing. We all sort of live in our own little isolated shells. You're a kind of unapproachable vendor within the music community. Because there's, because, and I don't mean that in, by any uh, offense, but the thing of it is, is that what you do, if what you did was easy, we wouldn't need you. If what you did was so accessible and just as simple as tuning a guitar, well, then, you know, there wouldn't be any Sugar Mountain PR because we'd all be doing it ourselves. But I know that it's difficult. Um, what you do is you've established through your career since the early 90s a rapport with NPR, with Pulse, with Rolling Stone, with New York Times. I mean, you know, you you know the gatekeepers in this community. And you know the words, like you said in the beginning, how to craft the message so it gets it gets sold. So that's why you're such a valuable resource. And also the whole process is kind of intimidating if you're trying to get to the next level. But <laughs> What I'm really curious about at this point, as I gas off, like you don't even have to talk during my podcast. I'll just talk and have you sit there. Um, but this is what I'm really curious about and a little frightened about. Um, I've, I've lived long enough to see us go from vinyl to CD, to CD, to digital, to digital, to streaming. Yeah. And... I have watched basically the the revenue of musicians, of performers and artists, just every time one of those technologies rolls out and is accepted, boom, we just keep going down as far as what we can uh, expect, as far as the value of our art form, of our product. So on your side, from your unique perspective, what do you think, especially now that this pandemic, we're going to get back to non-pandemic at some point in some three or four years we'll have figured this out we won't be doing pandemic stuff anymore but we will still be faced with the challenge of how do musicians make a living when our product is you know a tenth of a penny on spotify what do you what do you see is coming coming down the road well it's a big question, and it's not only just a question for our genre, it's a big question for every musician right now, and you can see all kinds of sharks out there in the music business world trying to capitalize on this big question, like, how do I earn a living? Um, and, and certainly my uh, work has changed, because when I started, uh, people were Buy, you know, people were still buying CDs, and so artists were earning a significant amount of their income every year from their CDs. And you're absolutely right. You don't earn the same amount from your CD sales as you once did, and nobody is. And so don't feel too bad. Um, <laughs> uh, and Spotify pays, you know, fractions of a cent on the, you know, on every stream. And yeah, you can be discovered there, but it's not a place to look for income. So, you know... You're so, so again, I think it's the power of the song. It's the power of getting to be known well enough that in, in good times, you're going to get better gigs that pay better. That's number one. Um, yes, developing other kinds of merch that actually will sell. I know some artists are not only selling, doing well with T-shirts, but things like plush toys. You know, um, I don't work with Morgan Taylor, but originally in the early days of Buster for Yellow Gold, I helped them out. And they now sell this little Kakenstein and the Gustafer figure. They sell tons of those at their show, tons. And maybe online, I don't know. But, that you know, the merch is important. Um, 
And you will sell some CDs, just not as many as you did. I think people are still buying them. They still have older cars. They're, you know, when they're out driving, when kids can go back to school, parents will still be driving their kids to school and there are road trips and they still have CDs. So, and kids like the physical object, pay attention to the way your album looks. It's important. It needs to look cool and interesting and something a kid wants to stare at. That's important. Um, but in terms of like the larger question, you know, it's something we're all trying to figure out. And I'm all, I've been lately going online and, you know, take a, a look and listen to what's happening in the general music industry and what's working and not working. And, you know, I think these things we've been talking about, building a scene in your community, if there's no demand for what you're doing, you need to create demand. You almost have to show families what you're doing and show them that it's important. And then in some ways, guilt them too. I've heard artists at the show saying, I'm not sure you know, but by buying my music, you're actually supporting what I do. Why? You should say that at every show, honestly. Because people think, and especially kids, they just think music comes out of their phone and they don't know that somebody's made it and that it, it's an art and that you you need to value it too. So there's no reason why you can't mention that in your social media, your communications to your fans and when you're doing a show. Like, this is how we live, folks, you know? <laughs> so if you buy our CD or download it from Pay and Bandcamp or whatever, I'm liking what Bandcamp is doing lately. They're, they're giving, during the pandemic, they're giving artists a larger share of the income. Mm -hmm. Really liking that. Um, so I think, you know, and, and then I guess if you hit, hit a certain level of fans on YouTube, I think it's a thousand, you can start monetizing your YouTube. But it's tricky because kids, you know, the kids marketing is tricky in YouTube. So um, I'm somewhat hopeful on the Spotify Kids app that just was announced in the U.S., although it seems like it's very heavy on the major label Disney mm -hmm. stuff. Um, there is a process. Um, and if anybody wants, I can send you a white paper we have done, one of my interns done, did on Spotify and how to use your social media to engage your fans and maybe build your sales. So if you want me to send you, you, you could just email me at Beth at SugarMountainPR.com and I will send that to you. Um, the cool thing is, is that I will email Beth at SugarMountainPR.com before this airs so that I will have my copy at least a week before anybody hears this. So All right. I win. I win. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, Andrew, I think it is a question for everybody in the music business. We're all trying to figure it out. Every artist, even Taylor Swift is trying to figure it out, you know, and she's doing well, but you know, there are artists that are earning a decent middle-class living in this field. They work their butts off and it happens. You're good. Mm -hmm. You know, thank you, Beth. I so appreciate your time and your insight and, uh, your patience with this process, because this is not, I mean, the technology of us having this conversation um, is, it's always more fun to be able to do this in person, but I couldn't do the podcast if I had to do it in person. So I appreciate you, you know, getting on the Zoom call with me and, and meeting you, because oh. I've heard so many great things about you from artists that I respect and, and appreciate over the, over the years. Um, you're, you're oh. one of the... Um, you know, you're one of the one of the legs under the table when it comes to the the professional aspect of of modern children's music, and have been. Thanks. So your roster re reflects basically the some I think some of the best of in the industry today, and it speaks volumes uh, to your to your credit, the fact that you know people like Brady Reimer, Red Yarn, they keep coming back to you to help help them pursue their goals. So. Well, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the, the conversation and learning a little bit more about what you do as well. And I think that this podcast is invaluable for people in the business. I'm glad you're doing it. Cool. So Micah and the phones, <laughs> Micah phones. Uh, let's say that somebody <laughs> out there who listens to this podcast wants to engage your services. What should they bring? Do they, Do you want them to reach out to you? Are you taking on new clients? I mean, I listen to everything. What makes it easier for me is if you can load up your songs into a folder or on SoundCloud is ideal or someplace where it's easy to stream or just listen. Because if you send me a bunch of attachments, please don't do that. It's a lot. <laughs> and if you're sharing on Dropbox, send me the link rather than the 
don't just hit the share because my Dropbox is way over full. It's better to have that link so I can just click. You know, there's certain things. Um, and it may take me a couple days to respond. I listen to everything. And again, I have a lot of factors I'm weighing. It's like, what is my workload right now? Because I am just me and a couple helpers, you know. Um, how does it fit in with everything else I'm already promoting? Um, and if I'm just totally excited and I think, oh, man, I can really promote this. Those are kind of the, how I decide. Okay, cool. So you're not you're not discouraging anybody from reaching out. You're just kind of saying, get your act together, do it appropriately, and then we'll see how it goes. Yeah, right now, again, I'm at a point in my career where luckily I have you know a roster of amazing artists that I work with. I like them and they come back and I need to make sure I leave space for them when they do come back. That's the other thing. Um, I do have a couple of ongoing projects. I'm doing work with Dory Pirates and PJ Library. And, and in when they're in business, Symphony Space is just kidding theories, but that is not happening this fall. So this fall might be interesting. But you, and uh, tangentially, you don't do booking for Symphony Space, do you? You just like recommend no. artists? You just kind of help? I have recommended artists as I know. I've worked with them for 11 years now or something. But uh, uh, no, I don't book exactly, no. I'm not a booking agent. I, I just, I represent, believe it or not, from Portland, Oregon, I represent the Just Kidding series in New York City, and I reach out to media in New York City about that series. Well, I mean, when you make the contacts, you have the contacts. Yeah, so yeah, I've got a great New York list. Right on. Okay. Thank you so much, Beth. Hey, if it's okay with you, maybe we'll bring you back on um, in a year and we'll do an update on what the state of the industry is and what the next season might look for. That sounds like. really good. It could be completely different. I hope it's better. Oh, I'm pretty sure it will be better. <laughs> <laughs> and if it isn't, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, the good thing is there's a flowering and effervescence of new stuff coming out and it's exciting to hear what people are working on. Right on. Thanks, Beth. Yeah. Next level. Take it to the next level. Mm, Harry, if you want to succeed at Hogwarts, you must take your Quidditch game to the next level. Next level. Thank you, Beth Blanks-Plakas, for coming on and talking to me about Sugar Mountain PR, about what you do, about what we should do to help you do what you do better so that we can all do-do better in this great do-do that we're doing, we're not doing. Uh, full disclosure time, when I uh, started out, I didn't have uh, much idea at all about PR, marketing, anything like that. When we first, uh, when my band put out our first album, we just put it out there and I had stars in my eyes and I was like, er, my gird, I'm totally going to do this. And of course it went, you know, as expected, it didn't go very far because I didn't have any idea what I was doing. But then with my second album, I also had a little bit more autonomy with the second album because uh, I was pretty much producing it and I, the, the members of the band changed a bit. So I was more in charge. By the second album, I pursued getting a PR agency uh, like Sugar Mountain to take my money and they wouldn't and it hurt my feelings. But then I, I came to realize that, no, that was part of the deal, that uh, I just wasn't there yet for, for many reasons. Many of those that Beth, Beth talked about today, that it's important to kind of know what you want and where you want to go with your career where you want to go with any of this. And I didn't at the time have any, any clue as far as the specifics in, in, in the real, real world. Third album came out. I did it again. I was less bummed out when um, the different agencies that I pursued, be they booking agencies or PR firms or you know marketing firms in the, in the in our genre, said no because it's just sort of rolling with it. Is it, Rejection of any kind is always a little bit, it smarts a bit. But, uh, you know, in this case, they're, uh, these folks are not going to take your money unless they know they can help you. And there could be so many reasons why they see from their side that it's like, no, yeah, you know what? Can't do it just yet. So my, in general, my thought is don't give up. Don't be intimidated to ask questions. 
if you reach out to Sugar Mountain and, and Beth says, wow, you guys are really great and I like your stuff, but I just don't think at this time I, I want to uh, represent you, you can say, oh, okay, cool. Well, what do you think we would need to do so that next time we, we have a better chance of getting to the next level? And she would probably say something like, well, first thing is you've got to go on Barn Banter with Cowboy Andy and, and you have to talk to him about how great he is and maybe buy him a cup of coffee and then you have to do all sorts of other things related to making sure that uh, Cowboy Andy is doing well. So you should probably buy all of his albums and listen to uh, all of his stuff on Spotify. Just put it on Spotify before you go to bed, auto repeat, turn the volume down, leave it on all night, all of his albums all the time on three or four devices in your house for like six months. And that's probably what you need to do if you want to get to the next level. And so, dear friends, until next time, as you scramble to start your Spotify or Pandora or wherever you can find Cowboy Andy and the Salamanders, I leave you with this thought. We're all in this together. Put on the damn mask. Get out there and protest safely if you can. Be sure you get a chance to vote. That's going to be really important because we don't want to be singing songs from a bunker in three years, do we? No, I don't think so. Okay. Talk to you later. And you know what we say. La, la, la.